So we are in the book of Romans. We've been here for a number of weeks here, and when we started a few weeks back, um, I gave you kind of an overview of where we're going. I want to show you that again because we're moving into this uh, kind of a different section. It's all about the gospel. It's about gospel-saturated life, and we're in a section about the need for the gospel. Then we go to the way of the gospel and our life in the gospel and the scope and talking about the Jews and the Gentiles all together. And then this last section, like many of the letters of the New Testament, it goes to the so what? So what does our life look like as we serve others and the Lord because of the gospel? So as we begin this section today, there's, there's a sense that the Apostle Paul is going to great pains to make sure that his first readers understood there's a need, that the gospel is needed. It's not just a nice idea. This news about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is not something to be kind of winked at and acknowledged, but it's desperately needed. And we will see that in the text today in just a moment as we stand and read it. In our text today, you're going to see a phrase, the wrath of God. And it's interesting, he repeats that phrase a number of times through the letter to the Romans. Now, for some people, maybe some of you here today, this idea of the wrath of God is, it's a disconnect. Like, I don't do that, or my God doesn't do that, or my God's not like that. And maybe some people even here today, you kind of have the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And of course, you like the New Testament God, right? Everybody does. Nobody likes the Old Testament God. And but, but we can't make that distinction. If for no other reason that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself refers to the Old Testament again and again and again. And the Old Testament consistently points to Jesus and even his work for us on the cross. So we can't discount this idea of the wrath of God. And in our culture today, that's just really easy to do. Now, to be sure, the wrath of God is not the primary emphasis of the Bible, as some might like to make it. Yet the gospel, please understand, the gospel that our lives are saturated with cannot be grasped fully without accepting the reality of the wrath of God, as well as the appropriateness of the wrath of God. I would suggest to you that we become idolaters if we're here worshiping a God that is wrath-free. We have created a God that we like, we created a God that we're comfortable with. We've created a God of our own imagination. Because the God of the Bible is not a wrath-free God, and we'll see it in our text today. So I'm, I'm just kind of preparing you, not somehow to make the wrath of God like, oh, how nice. <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to help you understand that it's essential to the character of God. It comes out of the character of God came across this wonderful quote. It goes all the way back to the 1950s to a gentleman named Richard Niebuhr. He says this, A God without wrath 
brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. What's interesting is he wrote that way back then about what was happening in churches today. They were preaching about a God without wrath and a Christ that didn't have to suffer. So again, you'll see it in just a moment. As we lead up to this, and as we see it throughout the book of Romans, the wrath of God is not inconsistent with the fact that he is the God of love. It's not inconsistent. The love of God can only be understood rightly if we acknowledge and accept the wrath of God. And the wrath of God cannot be understood rightly if we don't acknowledge the love of God. So let me say it this way. God cannot be either or. He must be both of those. The God of the Bible, the God that we're here worshiping today, loves good and hates evil. Do you agree with that? He loves good, he hates evil. Those two qualities of God are inseparable. He must do both or he must do neither. So please stand together with me. I'm going to read. You can follow along on the screens. You can open in your Bibles. It's Romans chapter 1. We're going to read an entire section, verses 18 through 32. We're not going to cover it all today, but you'll see that this section all kind of ties together, and then we'll be unpacking it over the next three weeks. This is from the New American Standard Version. Yours might be a little bit different. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever and everybody says amen for this reason god gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their heir. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. That is a weighty passage. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word, and we want you, please, by your Holy Spirit, to teach all of us here today. I pray, Father, that my words would be um, toward that end, that the Holy Spirit could reveal truth, not necessarily through my words, but through your word today. So please, draw us here, uh, focus us, that this would be a profitable time in the transforming of our lives to be more like Jesus. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So our focus today is verses 18 through 20. And yet, to understand 18 through 20, we just need to go back one verse. It's actually the verse we covered last week, and I think you will see why. It's so easy to miss. It seems like even in some of your Bibles, in my Bible, there's like this hard break after verse 17, and then we take a breath and go into 18. But 17 and 18, they go together. Because it says, for in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed. Do you see the similarity between those two phrases? The righteousness of God revealed, the wrath of God revealed. So we can't make a break and somehow say the gospel is just about the righteousness of God. Of course, the gospel as well is about the wrath of God and even how the wrath of God is revealed against sin. But as we'll touch on a little bit later, how the wrath of God is actually poured out on Jesus, amen, for our sake, for our sake. The good news about Jesus is that it yeah, reveals a righteousness that is available to us, but it also reveals a wrath of God that we would certainly want to avoid. Jesus did not die that cruel death that he died and all that he went through in his torment and then rise again just to give us peace and purpose and righteousness in this life. While that's good, please understand, in the same measure, he did all of that to save us from the wrath of God that is appropriate. So as we just walk through those verses, I want us to focus on three ideas, what the wrath of God is, why the wrath of God is, and when it is. And I know that's terrible English grammar, but that's how we're doing it today, all right? What the wrath of God is. I want to get just a bit technical because it is critical for us to kind of maybe 
dispel some ideas in our mind even when we hear this idea of the wrath of God. There's three words that could have been used in, in that language that would be translated wrath or anger. Let me just show them to you, and there's a little bit of a definition. There's this idea of thumos. It's a sudden outburst of anger that cools off quickly. There's another word, orge. It's it's an abiding and settled habit of mind. It's not visible at all times, but exhibits itself in the same way when it is necessary. It is a settled anger. It is a controlled anger. Thumos is about a seething, raging, boiling anger. Orge is kind of like a dam. If you can think of a dam and water pours into a dam and it builds up, but yet also a dam releases water because it's purposeful and it has to accomplish a purpose. Then that last word there, it's an interesting, it's only used one time in the New Testament, and it says you shouldn't be this way. It's exasperation, frustration, irritation. It's the one in Ephesians 4.26 where it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, deal with it. Now, when you see those three words that could be used, most would say, well, the wrath of God is thumos. And yet, when we think that, we're all wrong. And this is a beautiful part of it. And this is what helps us understand what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God, biblically, is this wrath or anger that proceeds from his settled nature. God's wrath is connected with his holiness, his justice, his love, his nature, his attributes. The wrath of God is God, out of his perfect nature, responding to sin appropriately. The wrath of God is not about God losing his temper. Now, for many of us, that's what our anger is all about. We lose our temper and we're out of control and we do things that we wish we hadn't done. Please dismiss that idea at all connected with God. God never loses his temper. He never loses his anger. He's never out of control. It's settled. It's purposeful. It's reasonable. It's rational. And it is perfect. It's the same word that's used in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was going to heal a man who had a withered hand, and you might remember that story, the religious leaders were, were looking for some way to trap Jesus. So he was going to heal on the Sabbath, and they said, well, you can't do that, you can't do that. And Jesus says, really, I can't heal somebody on the Sabbath when we read this word? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And then there's this, and looking around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. That's the same word. So it could be translated looking around at them in wrath. Just that sense of he's grieved at the hardness of their heart. He, is he out of control? No, he's not out of control. He's just recognizing that is wrong and that emotion of God is stirred even in Jesus. So what is the wrath of God? Man, all kinds of reading this week, and I don't know if this is helpful, but let me just put it up on the screen. Can we think of the wrath of God this way? And this is a man named Marvin Vincent, and I took his thoughts, and 
kind of created this, God's personal emotion with regard to sin. It represents God's settled hatred of sin and his constant invariable reaction to it. It's not out of control. It's constant. It's settled. It's the appropriate reaction that a holy, just God would have towards sin. It's appropriate. It, it would be wrong if God didn't have that or even respond to sin. We understand that. I read one philosopher was saying the wrath of God is what we should celebrate because the wrath of God says God is concerned about evil and sin and he does something about it. Amen? I'm glad God is like that. I'm also glad that Jesus took that for me, aren't you? Amen. So why? Why the wrath of God is? Now in our text, and this is going to take us into the rest of that passage we just read, but I would say there's three real clear reasons in this text why the Apostle Paul is saying the wrath of God is being revealed. And we can see it as three different reasons or maybe one reason with a couple of evidences. Here's the first one. Obviously, it's right in the text because people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Suppress, it means literally to hold down or squash or nullify. It could be used to suppress or hold a person, but in this context, it's talk about suppressing or holding down truth. Just a little more details there. It's written in a way that it is continual, it is active, it is volitional, it is a choice of their will. People are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Now, it's an important connection there. That word in unrighteousness could be translated by unrighteousness. In other words, the wrath of God is revealed because people, knowing the truth of God, suppress the truth of God because their lives are going a different direction and they don't want the truth to get in the way of where they're going. So understand what that means is truth is suppressed not because of intellectual reasons but because of moral reasons. People ignore the truth or disregard the truth, suppress the truth because they want to live contrary to the truth. Now, we're going to connect all of this later on in the passage. The Jerusalem Bible says that this way they keep truth imprisoned in their wickedness. They keep truth imprisoned in their wickedness. Ken, can you go back a slide or two there? Yeah, let's just leave it there for just a moment. So this truth that is being mentioned here, it's also just a beautiful word. It means literally that which nothing is hidden. In other words, it's absolute revelation, the revelation of God. 
So it's a beautiful idea to recognize here the truth about God is not a hidden truth. It is a clearly revealed truth. And yet, even though it is clearly revealed, it is actively suppressed. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of truth. Truth, Scripture says that truth and freedom go together. So the more truth I know, the more free I am to live appropriately and live a life that is actually more satisfying. When I go to buy a car, which I hate, what do I want to know about that car? I want to know the truth about that car, especially if it's a used car, right? If you're listening to a politician, what do you want to know? <laughs> you want to know the truth. Truth is valuable. Truth is something to be sought and held on to and cherished. And yet what we see in this text, there's people who will suppress the truth. Why would you want to suppress something so valuable simply because the truth is getting in the way with what you want to do? Your life is moving in this direction. When you run into truth, that is just a conflict. So instead of changing direction because of the truth, what do you do? You suppress it. You keep it down. And so the wrath of God comes. That's why the wrath of God is revealed. We move on. People reject the revelation of God in them. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, your translation might say evident among them or made plain to them. Seems like in this text, what he's saying is God has made himself known in a person and around a person. God has made himself known in an internal way and an external way. Now, we would use the word conscience there. The revelation of God in a person is the word conscience. What is a conscience? It's the sense of right and wrong. It's this inner feeling or voice that is a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. And this is saying God has made himself known and it's evident within people. Now you might say, but it seems like throughout history people's behavior reveals a lack of conscience. <laughs> I say, well, it seems that way, but that's not true. Everybody has a conscience. But what they do is they reject the voice of the conscience. They even suppress the conscience. Look how this idea is used in two other places. Here we go. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their what? Their conscience are defiled. And here we see a distinction between the mind and the conscience. So God has made himself known not just in a way that be, can be comprehended mentally in the mind, but in a way that is internal. And I would say that internal witness is because every person on the planet is made in the image of God. But that says there that both the mind and the conscience can be defiled, implying that both the mind and the conscience can be impacted in such a way that they do not function the way God intended them to. 
And we're going to come back to the idea of the mind because I don't know if you noticed in our text when we read the whole text that it says that there's such a thing as a depraved mind that is actually a revelation of the wrath of God. Here's another use in 1 Timothy chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says and in later days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their, what, conscience as with a branding iron. Again, there's the same word there in Titus. And notice now that the conscience is seared as with a branding iron. <laughs> that is just really interesting, the way that works. Seared as with a branding iron is this big, long word in the Greek that we get the word cauterize from. What does it mean to cauterize? Well, you know, you take something hot and you sear it, and, and you might do it in a positive way to stop the bleeding of something, but what that does is it renders something unsensitive or insensitive. And the idea is that the conscience is rendered unsensitive or unfeeling so that the person can do something terrible, unimaginable, damaging to them and to others, and their conscience feels nothing. So the end result is the revelation of God in them in the conscience has been muted. So the wrath of God is revealed because the inner revelation of God in the conscience has been abused over and over and over again by sinning and sinning and sinning in complete disregard to God's revelation in them that is in the conscience. Are you with me so far? I didn't hear anybody say yes. So do we go back to the beginning and start over? Everybody says no. People suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They reject the revelation of God in them. And here's the third point. They reject the revelation of God around them. Verse 20 in the text says, For since the creation of the world, God's or his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been what? clearly seen being understood through what has been made evidently the apostle paul was a creationist <laughs> evidently he's saying god made things god made everything they didn't just happen god created a personal god personal creator god brought everything into existence now Biblically, we see that we could go all the way back to the beginning of the book, Genesis 1-1. You probably know it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we just covered this idea of the creator God in our class on Wednesday night, and I was blown away how many times that truth biblically is not just assumed. It is repeated over and over and over again. This idea of a creator God is foundational to the way that anybody thinks and lives their lives. If you eliminate a creator God, your life goes in a completely different direction than your acknowledgement that whether you know this creator God personally, you recognize there is a God that created, your life goes in a different direction. It's foundational. That's why it's repeated over and over and over again in the biblical text. In our Wednesday night class, we looked at a lot of them. There's one in Nehemiah 9, and it's just kind of an interesting place for this to show up. Nehemiah, he's, 
he's rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem and everybody's excited. They have this praise service and it, and it says this, their praise sounds like this, oh may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise because you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You made the heavens and all the hosts and the earth and all that is in it and the seas and you give life to them all and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. So their praise service starts going all the way back to what? God, you're the creator. Because then that impacted them even where they were up to that point. And we go to the end of the story in the book of Revelation. We see the same thing. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, you can write this down, look it up later. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, and there's 24 elders and they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. Here's how they worship him. Worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and they were created. In the internal state, as I, as I think of this idea of the book of Revelation, their worship at that point when it's all said and done goes all the way back to the beginning. God, you're the creator. It's foundational. So the argument the Apostle Paul is making here is creation itself reveals to everyone not just that God exists, but this God is so big and so wonderful, this God is to be worshipped. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. God is powerful. God is, is God and that's clearly seen. So it's almost when you look at creation, it's God saying, I'm here. And I'm powerful, and I'm divine. You should worship me. But they refuse to see it. And again, I'll, I'll say, going back to what I said earlier, it's not for lack of evidence. It's like they, like they, I don't, I don't see that anywhere. It's that they refuse to see it. It's not an intellectual issue. It becomes a moral issue. You see, if I acknowledge personally that there's a creator God, if I acknowledge that, then I am somehow responsible to that God. If there's a personal creator God, then I have an accountability to that God. And the point that the Apostle Paul is driving at is that to many people, that is untenable. That cannot happen. So then people close their eyes to the clearly seen revelation of God in creation so that they can do as they please and then be God themselves. I must take you to Psalm 19 just to see how King David declares this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Notice those powerful words. Declare, 
proclaim, pour forth into all the earth. You don't have to look hard. You don't have to look deeply. You don't have to examine. You don't have to turn over any leaf. You just have to look at the leaf and say there's a God that created. Or that leaf would not have the design that it has and the purpose that it has. There is something bigger than me that I must look up to. Quick commercial break. There's three books I want to make known to you. And it's actually Rachel Velez that first introduced these to me. Um, they can be used as kind of a devotional. You open up and said, here's some more evidence of a creator God that's good and powerful. I was using this with my grandson Titus uh, yesterday. Titus is five. And I said, hey, I got this book I want you to look at. Just look through here, Titus, and, and see the animal you want to know something about. And so you look through the pages, and it's not all about the animal or the animal world, but just creation. And we, we went through a whole bunch of different things about different creatures that God created and, and how it reveals the beauty and power and intelligence and magnificence of God. Gets a little deep sometimes, so it's not always for five-year-olds, all right? If you have teenagers, it's great for them. It's great for me. I keep them in my office, and sometimes just to take a break, I'll sit and I'll just open it up a page. So commercial break is over. All right. So what is, what is the result then of ignoring or rejecting or closing your eyes to the clearly seen revelation of God in creation? Here's four very obvious ones, and you tell me if you think they fit where we're at as a culture today because the Apostle Paul is saying it fits back in that culture. Here's one of the things that happened. We end up worshiping created things, nature and animals, or things that we create. We become absorbed with and focus on creation and reject the creator. We want to save the planet while rejecting the creator of the planet. We create new things, things that make us comfortable, things that make life easier, and yet we reject the giver of life in general, but we want all these things. So when we say we worship created things, it's, it's not just how in our culture it's become all about saving creation. It's really about being absorbed with things that we create and ignoring absolutely the God that created everything. Here's another result. We, we get to the point that life has no value and it lacks a purpose. So we become adrift looking for something to give us stability, something to give us purpose. We experience things like depression and anxiety because we recognize at this point, if there's not a creator, I don't know what life is all about. So the end result of that practically is we numb ourselves or we distract ourselves. We keep our minds numb in all kinds of different ways, whether it's alcohol or drugs. We just want to numb our experience of this life that we make no sense of. Or we distract ourselves. And I think that's where we're at. We are a distracted culture. We all are a distracted culture. And even for some of us, I think we're distracted with our screens because 
We don't want to stop and be still because Scripture says, be still and know what? I'm God. And for some people, that's just an uncomfortable feeling, so I got to stay distracted all the time. I have to stay busy all the time because if I sit still long enough, the reality will just weigh me down that there's a God. We determine, third thing is there's no absolutes. Life becomes subjective and relative. The culture then becomes lawless. Why does it become lawless? Because without a creator God, there's no longer a standard for anything. That look familiar to anybody? Yeah. There's no standard to be enforced because the standard becomes shifting sand. So then there's no absolute, there's lawlessness. And everything falls to the po lowest possible moral level. Because there's nothing that's a standard to raise it up to. We worship created things. We have no value or purpose in life. There's no absolute. And the fourth obvious one, the wrath of God is revealed. So what the wrath of God is, it's God's personal emotion with regard to sin. It represents his settled hatred of sin, his constant invariable reaction to sin. Why the wrath of God is because people suppress the, clearly, the clear evidence of the truth of God in their conscience, in creation. So we have one last point then, when the wrath of God is. Go back to the beginning of this text. It's interesting. and it says, the wrath of God is revealed. And again, when we dig into that, it means it's continually being revealed. It is constantly being revealed. God's wrath is a standing, ongoing reality of the world. So the short answer to the question, or it's not actually the question, when the wrath of God is, it's always, because it's the standing response that he has to sin and issues of sin and even people that have rejected the truth revealed to them, which is sin. So therefore, God's wrath is always being revealed from heaven against those who reject his truth and his revelation. Now we can go back through biblical history or the biblical narrative the wrath of God is revealed, was revealed in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. God responded to that. Adam and Eve decided they didn't want God's truth. They wanted to be their own decider of truth. They were banished from the Garden. And I even thought about that. Even that animal that was slain, whatever it was, experienced the wrath of God to cover their sin. The wrath of God was later revealed in that worldwide flood. The wrath of God is revealed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and drowning the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army. And again, understand that all of those that seem so harsh, that's not God out of control. It's God's appropriate response to issues of sin throughout the biblical narrative. And then can I point you to the cross? What do we see at the cross? The cross is a revelation of the wrath of God poured out on Jesus that then allows the wrath of for us to be free from the wrath of God. But there's a future revelation of God's wrath. Let me just take you to chapter 2 of Romans. 
It says this, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the first readers, he's saying, you're at a point where you're storing up wrath for a future day of wrath. Now, he's not specific on what that day means or when that day happens or even if it's already happened for those first readers. But it's interesting, as we go to the book of Revelation, the word wrath is used a number of times in the book of Revelation. In my mind then, in my theology, there is a future time when the wrath of God will be poured out in a significant way. I won't put these on the screen. You can write them down and read them later. This is Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, they said to the creation, they, they said to creation, hide us from the creator. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who's able to stand? Go to Revelation 19. This is a reference to Jesus, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod and iron. Listen to this imagery. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. When is the wrath of God? It's past, it's in the present, and it's in the future. It is always appropriate. It is always certain. And I'll just say, that should drive us right back to Jesus, amen? That's what, it, it should take us right back to the gospel. Take us right back to the need that we have and the need that has been met for us by Jesus. Two more passages. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 1, let me put this on the screen, I just want you to see the connection, for they themselves report to us about what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. In other words, you didn't worship created things. To serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who raised, he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, read it with me, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He's saying these people experienced the reality of Jesus. They believed what Jesus had done for them. They weren't worshiping created things. They were worshiping the one true God. Therefore, they're rescued from the wrath to come. Amen to that, huh? Same book, chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build up one another just as you also are doing. I read that and that's a great place to end. God has not destined his people for this future wrath because his people have understood the wrath of God that was due them was appropriately poured out on Jesus and we then experienced the freedom from that wrath. And we should encourage one another in that. We should rest in that. We should rejoice in that. And I would add, 
As much as it's given to us, we should do what we can to rescue others from that. Amen? We've experienced it. We should make that known to others. All right. We're trying to take this big section in some little bite-sized pieces. What the wrath of God is, it's God's personal emotion with regard to sin. It represents God's settled hatred of sin and is this constant, invariable, appropriate, certain reaction to sin. And it comes because people reject the clear revelation of God. In them, in their conscience, in creation, because it gets in the way with what they want to do. When is it? It's always, it's past, present, and future. Rejoice today, church, if you recognize the wrath of God at the cross that was taken for you. So we'll stop right there. It feels like kind of a hard stop because it just keeps going, this truth, so we'll pick it up. And where we go next week is talking about how this wrath of God, as he's writing to the Romans, is revealed, and I would say how it's even being revealed in our culture today. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful again for the fact that you've revealed truth to us. And Father, we've just spent time reading the truth of your word. And I'm just going to pray now, again, that what we've heard, the Holy Spirit would bring transformation. And I don't know what that means for everybody here, but you do. Lord, for believers here today, I'm praying that the truth that you've, in Jesus, have saved us from the wrath to come, you've rescued us, that that would just well up in us over and over again, and then allow us to go out and live life fully and freely to point people to that rescuer. Father, if there's some here today that haven't yet experienced that, of course, I pray for them that their hearts would be called up to you that they would call out to you for forgiveness they would repent they would be able to call jesus savior today so again we sing these songs as we close because of you we give them we sing them to you because you're worthy amen